Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkoff, and today I am joined by Kieran O'Leary, VP of Marketing at Rovio. What we're going to talk about is how to market mobile games in 2021. Now, Kieran has had marketing leadership position at Gameloft and the notorious Outfit 7, the makers of Talking Tom. And um, today we're going to talk about the resurrection of product marketing, the role of an IP in, a, in performance marketing, as well as how to manage an ever-broadening media mix that is, well, becoming more important post-IDFA. So if I would have to describe Kieran in one, wor one word, it would be a badass, and I always enjoy talking to him. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, I remind you to subscribe and rate this podcast, and before we jump onto the conversation, a quick message from our amazing sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do, do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. I think what's what's become clearer certainly in the last few years as competition in the game industry has really stepped up is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business you know you could be super lucky you your game is an instant hit it's resonating with users but for when that's not the case uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level that's where we come in so we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zeloff, VP of Marketing at Iron Source. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. Hello, Kieran. How's it going? It's going pretty well, Mika. How are you doing? 
I'm doing good. I have to say that you're you're the most badass of we've ever had on this this podcast. So, so this is not like this is not going on YouTube, but if they would see you, my god, like you are an MMA fighter, ex MMA fighter, current kickboxer. Uh, you are tatted up, and you're and you have an Irish surname. So I I don't know any any more badass than than Kieran O'Leary. <laughs> I'll, I'll take all of that. Thanks. <laughs> I, I actually remember interviewing you for the first time. And, you know, I, I like my true, martial yeah. arts. And um, you came in and I was like, this guy knows how to fight. <laughs> like you were wearing your button down and everything. But I saw I saw you could kick some ass. <laughs> but we're not we're not here talking about fighting anybody. But we're talking about kicking ass and especially kicking ass in product marketing. Right. So. Let's just jump right into it. So post IDFA, a lot of things happening. Uh, but one thing that has been predicted is that there's going to be a resurrection of product marketing. Mm -hmm. And that means few things. Well, companies can't rely on creative performance to understand audiences like they used to. They actually have to analyze more their own audience than before and not leave it to Facebook or Google. And also they most likely have to pursue broader audiences because targeting becomes extremely difficult. Now you have a background of product marketing. You've been global product marketing director at Gameloft. You've been senior director of marketing at Outfit7. I've talked bad things about talking Tom. Let's not go, go no, into you that. Did. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, great company, just too many ads. Anyway, and currently VP marketing at Rovio. So my questions for you are is what makes a great product marketing manager, what this person should own, when to hire one, and what deliverables should you expect from this person? So if you'll know me, starting by changing the view that it's the resurrection of product marketing, I'll start with that. I, I think it was never dead in the first place. Uh, I think there were a lot of misconceptions about the, the role of product marketing. A lot of people were seeing them as guys updating screenshots on, on app stalls and, and like, running exotic campaigns with like no objective whatsoever to, to bring back AI. I, I really don't think that's the, the, the mission statement for this craft. So I, I think it's it's always been very much alive, uh, but maybe people are paying more attention to it because of this uh, idea for deprecation. But to, to, to go back to your, to your questions, um, so I, I guess what makes a good uh, product marketing manager is being player focused. Uh, we're way ahead the times wherein we could just focus on having great products. There is a trazillion of products available out there. So you need to make sure that from the get go, you're asking yourself, why would people care? Like what, what's in my product that would make people change from their existing game to, to the one I'm developing. So player focused mindsets, big time. Then um, product marketing managers should also be uh, able to have a very holistic view on the player journey and on marketing as a well. whole. Um, comparing them to experts uh, such as uh, UA strategists or managers or like community managers, they, 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 view, they, they have a view on the entire funnel. Like uh, that starts with the user research and that ends with how we address customer tickets. But the, the common denominator to all these touch, point, touch points is the player. And within the team, the one guy who's owning that is a product marketing manager. Then there is also like a need for, for like uh, this mindset of trying, learning and being agile about things. Um, they need to be angry for experimentations. They, they need to leave no stone unturned and, and try everything that's possible. So let's speak about marketability tests, but also more like 
newer and fancier and more exotic avenues such as uh, influencer marketing and things that are just not tracked or where the ROI is not as obvious as all the, the, the Facebook, Google and Unity's uh, of this world. Then there is another big trait that personally I'm very interested in seeing product marketing managers considering how transversal of a role they have, which is their ability to create very deep and sustained relationships with all needed crafts. These guys, they need to talk like a thousand different languages. They need to be able to go to the artists and make their vision and mandate clear, clear sorry. They need to go to tech and, and, and achieve the same results. So they need to be chameleons and get their point across with like people who have different languages across the entire company. Mm. And then finally, and I guess this wrap things up, um, definitely hunger for growth. Um, they, they need everything that they do must be pointing towards achieving growth. And, and that's something that people ignored a little bit in the past. Um, they were just seeing them again as just maintaining something when everything that they do should be driving an increase in revenue. Yeah, the, the, the word resurrection comes more in their place and hierarchy that we've seen in the game studios because the role of a UA has been so dominant. Uh, and, and, you know, like running all these campaigns, like they're mostly just copying each other campaigns in many games. So that and, and just being the ability to run so many campaigns and find what works, what doesn't work and just experiment super fast, that kind of overrode the role of a PM. But as you said, the PM's role is to be like the way I, I think I put it in one image, it's like between UA and product between the game team and the performance marketing team. And of course, there's a lot of in between there's user research, there's all those elements, but but this person is definitely uh, sitting there in between. And, and it's not only like a high level thinking or app store optimization. It's, it's, as you said, thinking about the player journey as a whole, thinking about what the players understand, like, yeah, being, being player focused. So so yeah, the, the role is, is becoming more, more important. Um, but one question for you that, that you didn't answer was like, when do you hire one? Uh, as soon as you, you're thinking about it and your concepts. Um, like in, in my world, you need to have a PMM from, from day one um, for, for various reasons. You, you asked me about the deliverables. Um, I mean, you need to have a very clear understanding of the, the, the market dynamics. You need to have a very clear understanding of what's the audience that you're going after. Uh, you need to test marketability right away. Um, the, the way I, th that might be like, um, uh, maybe too, too much of a simplistic view uh, on this topic, but to me, scalability is the, the, the function of three main dimensions. You have the total addressable market. So you need somebody to measure it. Um, usually that's done by marketing agents and product marketing. Game leads obviously should have an interest in that, but in terms of ownership that goes towards either again, marketing agents or product marketing. <clears throat> then you've got marketability. Um, this is something that again, you, you, you can't win this battle today if you don't have a marketable product. So basically to summarize this, what percentage of this total addressable markets is actually going to be interested in my products. And, and, and you can and you should test that as soon as you have some idea of what your concept is going to be. Testing your value proposition, testing your outside, testing the, the fantasy that's behind it. And all of this should be owned by, by product marketing. And again, that, that's something that should be done like in, in a couple of months after you, you're starting considering a new concept. And then the, the third dimension to scalability is actually product performance. So what kind of metrics you're seeing in the game and that's something that you can measure just, well, quite later in the process. Of course, you can get some proxies for day one, day three in, in a matter of month, 
but then for monetization, we all know that that uh, proxies are available mature on the, the process. Mm, yeah, yeah, especially the first two, the total addressable market and marketability, that should come in in the concept validation phase. And, and as, you, as you're saying, like, like you can move forward from no matter how fun your prototype is, but, but if you don't understand these two, then it's going to be a problem. And uh, funny enough, um, since starting my own journey in a startup, I've actually done the first two myself. So I was in a role of product marketing manager. And I do have to say like, that's not the optimal. And of course you shouldn't do that if you're a part of a corporation and you have actual product marketing managers to help you. But I do have to say that they, for us, for smaller studios, and I know like half of our audience is, is from, from, from slightly smaller studios, there are tools that you can use. Like I've personally used the same tools as we used at Rovio. So Geek Lab and 12 Traits, uh, yeah. they helped up a lot uh, into taking away just, and as well as Sensor Tower to understand the uh, the market sizes. But but um, but yeah, I, I actually 100% agree with you. Some people think that, that you get through concept validation by just making a fun demo and the distributing to the team or teams and everybody plays and everybody like, this is fun. We should totally invest 25 millions in making this. <laughs> <laughs> it but could work you, yeah but you know what makes me super happy like if i'm if i'm looking at Provio in a year and a half like looking at how things have changed like now perkeets are fighting for more perk marketing resources like that's the thing they, they want them from the get-go so i think like as you said yourself uh, the, the the maturity at the very least in uh, at Rovio, but in the larger industry has, has really grown and that makes me a very happy man yeah, and, and it's and what I like about total addressable market and marketability, especially marketability. It's like the first KPI you can get for your for your idea. And that KPI is really important because if the first and, and of course you need to understand total addressable market because when you go to your marketability testing, you have to target a audience. You can't just go to marketability testing because you have a nice picture in your mind. And you would say, like, well, I'm thinking about that lads between 18 to 45 will play this game. That's that's yeah, that's, that's, that's not really like you have to understand your audience, then test it with that audience. And that is your first KPI. You will get your CPI, you will get your IPM. Uh you, you will get a lot of numbers from, from Facebook campaign. And, and I argue that a product lead should be able to do that. But, uh, but I understand if it's a bigger company, then let just somebody else take the wheel for a while and just, you can concentrate on the, on the nice demo, but a product lead should be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they should. But uh, I mean, getting support from people whose job it is to actually focus on that. Is of course, also cool. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it if I... And I didn't do it when I had product marketing managers help. So, but uh, anyway, so let's talk about the role of an IP in performance marketing in post IDFA. So of course, Rovio, not only known for its own IP, Angry Birds, Bad Piggies, but also known for working with all kinds of IPs, whether it's making a game with an IP, I'm not going to say Stella with, um, with, with Shakira, but, but there, there've been other, there's been movie games like Crudes. Um, there's been, um, there's been campaigns with like Iron Maiden and, um, Angry Birds Evolution. There's been numerous campaigns and actually in all the games, everything from NFL to NBA to you name it. So IP is something that Rovio it's, it's part of your core competence. So at the same time, we know that the, uh, the ATT will handicap the ad platforms capabilities to target specific users. And that means that the IP is kind of well aligned. An IP that is well aligned with a core gameplay mechanic 
can really provide a useful in, in kind of effortlessly, effortlessly segmenting audiences across his taste and interest boundaries. And the other part, which is good is, well, not good. Other part is bad, but it's what's happening right now is entertainment companies are quite desperate to work with game developers. Um, we've seen even entertainment companies start their own gaming studios, but the fact is that they just can't film anything right now and they need to get their IP somehow uh, in front of the audiences. And they've seen that the games have been very resilient. So that makes them very open to lending their IP and actually hungry to do that. Now, again, as I said, Rovio is very uniquely positioned to grow their games as a company because you own your IP and you have excellent relationship with pretty much all the major IP holders around the world. So my questions, how do you leverage an IP successfully in performance marketing? How do you manage an IP in games? Like what are the processes, the checks and barriers? Like how is the Angry Birds IP managed? What restriction does an IP set in terms of performance marketing? Meaning like you have like you have Angry Birds probably sets uh, quite a lot of restrictions on what kind of creatives you can use. Like not all the Playrix methods or App Lovin's methods are there for you to, to grab the shock advertising and misleading ads. And, um, and finally, like, how does Rovio approach new games with an IP? A small Town Murder is the, is the latest example. And um, like, how do, you, how do you start with that? Because it has a narrative, it has a story, it has characters. Like, do you think about it as an IP or an IP something that might come in later if the game succeeds? So feel free to, uh, to start from any of these questions. All right. So I, I think I'll take them in order. So starting with the um, leveraging an IP successful in performance marketing. I, I think one of the, 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 the key, key factor in, in the successful IP are the, the characters and how identifiable they are. Um, if you look at neuroscience, which is also one topic we, we really looked into for, for like creative ideation processes and whatnots, humans and, and their brains are, are paying a lot of attention to, um, to facial expressions. They are paying a lot of attention to what they can relate to at a very emotional level. And I can't think of an IP without characters. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of it, but I, nothing comes to mind. So that, that's one thing. And, and this is something that we've been digging into quite, quite a lot in, in the last few months, half a year, making sure that we, uh, we, 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 we grab people's attention with these facial expressions. And now the, the beauty of like, Angry Birds is that we, we have a lore, but it's, it's a pretty open one. So we, we can play with a lot of different approaches. In terms of restrictions, they, they are pretty low. And, and going back to the first question, so we, uh, I'm already pre-anticipating the, the next questions. Um, you have top of mind awareness. Like Angry Birds has been played and seen by half of the planets. Um, and this is not me not being humble, but already you, you get that edge over all these other IPs that people have or non-IPs, I should say, that people have never heard of in the first place. So that's what you want to leverage. You want to retap into what makes your brand so successful. So there is a lot of work to be done in order to understand what kind of traits and attributes made your brand successful in the first place. We, we recently ran two, two pretty big pieces of research to um, for, for new projects where we identified the um, the personas and how uh, and how they relate to uh, to the Angry Birds brand. So, as in, what is Gen Z associating to um, Angry Birds? What are the traits and attributes that they appreciate and makes them enjoy that kind of IP? Same thing for all the audiences that you can think of. So, once you you have a good understanding of that, then when you work on your creative strategy, you make sure that you tap into these very valuable traits that right away are going to get people's attention.
So that's in a nutshell what I'm saying. You need to understand why in the first place your IP is so successful. If we look at Angry Birds, it's, uh, I'll be very transparent with you. We, we made it also because we were like back in time, there weren't that many products and we had an amazing one. And since then, what we've been able to do is to, 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 keep, to keep the ball rolling and to keep on growing it. But if you look at the last, I don't know, like five years, no single IP made it outside of the, the mobile spells, uh, those that were mobile native in the first place. So that's what I would be focusing on. Then in terms of IP management, so we, we have a, a brand direction team um, that's looking at games and that's looking at all the businesses outside of games. And the way we look at them is not so much as the brand police, but much more as enablers. So basically what they do is they, they define the, the sandbox within which we can operate. They tell, all right, these are the constraints that you have to, to play with, and you have all this room to do whatever you want. And then it's also a matter of making sure that you, you also compartmentalize your brand because your brand can be showed in, in many different ways to many different audiences. Just look at how Angry Birds is being treated with the um, in Angry Birds match. Uh, this has nothing to do with what you're seeing in Angry Birds 2. And still, it is aligned and true to the core values of the brand. So for us, I'd say as compared to some other IPs, and uh, maybe I could mentioned Disney here, uh, we have much more freedom. Um, you would need to try very hard to be outside of the scope of uh, what's possible. So of course, we're not going to do a first, pay, first person shooter with Angry Birds, pretty not an our game. Uh, um, we try to think long-term, so we don't want to go like down the road of uh, misleading advertising or shock, uh, shock advertising, but still we, we have a lot of freedom. We've experimented with a lot of things, so we, we have a pretty, pretty flexible approach to uh, to brand management. And then to, to your last point, um, which is about new IPs. We're a games first business. And this is something that is um, a reality. And so we, when we think about a new IP, the focus is on making sure that products within the mobile space, mobile space, sorry, mobile gaming space even, are going to be able to leverage it. So when we look at them, we look at the at the depth that they might offer and at the, the gross levers that are directly embedded within the theme that we're leveraging. So if you look at small town murders, for example, true crime is massive. Like it's one of the most appreciated theme within the entertainment, whether you're looking at TV series, movies, um, novels, you name it. It's, it's huge within this audience that we're targeting as in women in their 30s and above. So you need to make sure that from the get-go, you, you have this huge sandbox again that you can leverage in, in many different ways. And when we look at new IPs, um, they all need to have these hooks. Um, they all need to have a very large width of, of, of traits that you can leverage for, for, for marketing. So that's really the focus. And, and to be even more specific than that, um, Let's look at the future of uh, small town. Um, this line of product, what we what we do is we bring a variety of themes, like in in, in focus groups, and and we really again asked, what do people, what does it, this target audience associate to the themes that we have in mind? What why do people like suits? Why do people like romance that that is working? Um, sorry, romance that that's happening in in hospitals. Why the hell are these people interested in that? And you need to nail that. So that's really the groundwork that's done. 
even prior we go to the marketability test uh, phase that we, we discussed before. They like it because doctors make a lot of money and save people. <laughs> oh, you have the answer then? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it feels like Rovio is a very, very, no, I would say that Rovio has a strong emphasis on product marketing because you were talking about understanding what makes the brand successful, focusing on the audience traits, focusing on total addressable market, testing marketability, and then committing. So coming up with various themes and, and really understanding what are you going to offer for this specific audience and then move on with the game versus a lot of game teams making a lot of prototypes and then what sticks we're going to make which is kind of like the on the other spectrum of approaches. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we have this thing internally that we call pair focus. And I think it, it's, it's uh, I mean, it, it's been getting a lot of traction internally. And, and that, that is a massive victory because you, you need to, to, like, again, this is such a saturated market that unless you, you, you know for a fact that people are going to like that the way you present your product in the first place, this is a lost cause. Uh, you better do something else. There's always a misconception between market-driven approach of making games versus incremental way of making games or, not, not, or, or like a prototypey way of making games because it's always considered that if you are very market-driven, then you don't care what the game is. And then the other side is considered like if, if you don't care about what the market is, you only care about the core gameplay. And the misconception comes in from the, from this, from, from the point where games that are made based on that there's a big audience and this is the type of game should be made but if the execution is not there then that game won't be successful but nevertheless mar mar product marketing will take the blame for the game not being successful <laughs> that's in my experience what what usually happens and then the organization switches back to like you know what we just have to find what is fun let's just prototype all kind of cool games because company Y does it. <laughs> so that's, that's yeah, the sort like, of a pendulum swing that I've seen in the studios. That, that's true. But like, let's give one very simple fight in mind. Unless you try a product, you can't assess whether you're going to actually enjoy it. And, and I mean, you need to have a marketable product if you want people to stop playing it in the first place. So you, you can have the, the best product in the, in, in the entire world unless you've managed to grab people's attention, there is, it's, again, it's, it's a lost cause and that's a pure waste of resources. Because again, there is so much choice. Why would people care about your fun products if there is nothing that is interesting to them in the first place uh, that's visible in the video of like the banner, whatever you have in mind? I would put it this way. It's not either or. You also have to have a fun, great game and you have to have a marketable game for it to become a big game. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. Like you <laughs> so, said, like three dimensions, yeah. total addressable markets, marketability, great product. Yeah. That's, yeah. You, you have it. Exactly. But some of the things can be measured earlier in the process than others. And I think it's easier to measure marketability than measure the degree of funness of any new prototype. Yeah. And then the way for, for teams to consider this, when I see early marketability results and where I see total addressable market being significant and, and understanding the audience and understanding that this is what they want, it should help the development of your game. That's what it's meant to be. And you still need to develop a good game. It doesn't matter how well you understand your audience. If the game sucks, you may be able to market, but players just won't stay there. 
because it's not delivering on what it was supposed to deliver on and what, what, you know, what, what you were selling them. So, so yeah, it's not either or. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's talk about broadening of media mixes. So I said before with IDFA deprecation, they're going to be most likely broader audiences. And that means broader targeting. And what it leads to is, is instead of measuring, you know, unique cohorts or player specific segment specific LTVs. It's more of measuring incrementality. So how much the game grows after all these marketing measures have been done. So Rovio has been doing a lot of top of the funnel marketing before, uh, probably before even it was called top of the funnel, you know, everything from sponsoring soccer teams, basketball teams, doing massive live events, taking over Space Needle, um, you name it, the Rovio has does it. Has, has done it. So, so my question for you is like, how do you measure the performance of things like TV, various sponsorships, PR? Um, also, who owns this sort of a top of the funnel campaign in an organization? Is it an executive? Because if you're sponsoring a, a football team, that's most likely an executive that wants to own, own that process. <laughs> is it product marketing or is it user acquisition? And what are the sort of do's uh, like do's and do nots for these type of uh, top of the funnel campaigns. All right. So if you don't mind, I'll comment on the periods during which I've been working at Rovio. So it's been since September, 2019. Going back to your questions and, and making sure that I'm, I'm not missing anything. Um, if you don't mind me, I'll comment during the, the periods I, I was actually working at Rovio. So since, since September, 2019, before that, I, it's, it would be a stretch for me to, to give you accurate information. But basically, I think we, we need to rebuild the trust in all of these top of the funnel approaches. And for that to work, we need to make sure that we, we frame them and we look at them first individually before stacking everything together. So what I'm saying here is, let's run a TV campaign in a specific market. Let, let's look at the um, increase in, in, in revenue downloads over the, the baseline during a, like a, a similar period of time. Let's look at um, how it affects conversion. Let's look at all the, the, the dimensions of marketing within this very defined perimeter. If that works well, then you can start extending that. But like you very well know, um, a lot of people didn't trust these channels in the past. So we need to show early signs that we're likely to get some traction with it. A quick comment on sponsorship and, and PR. To me, these are not directly acquisition channels. They contribute to building top of mind awareness, but I, I think that looking at them as a trackable acquisition channel is, is a lost cause and, and some sort of delusion as well. You need to accept as a brand that you're taking long-term investments, and I don't think you should be measuring that in terms of direct impact on your, on your revenue or top line. I, I think you should be looking at other metrics such as user-generated content, um, you should be running brand surveys um, to, to, to see how people perceive your brand, but don't look at the, the DNUs. You're, you're just wasting your time. And I think that using sentiment analysis tools is, is a good way to do that. How frequently are people talking about your brand? Looking at whether your CPIs are decreasing is also one way to do it, but, but don't look at the top line right away, else you're, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. But if you look at them all together, um, and, and I think a lot of people have been talking about media mix modeling, that's, I mean, from a, from a philosophical standpoint, that's the holy grail. I know that some smart people out, out there think that it's the, the, the role, one approach to rule them all. Um, 
I can say humbly that we, we have a very solid uh, data science team. Uh, we've been experimenting with that and talking with Singular and other partners. Nobody has managed to make it work. One of the biggest limitations to this is that we, we tend to have uh, a spend that is correlated. We tend to have a spend that is constant or increasing. And for NMM to work, you need to make sure that you've got drops or uncorrelation between your spend. Else, it's not working. So I, I would love somebody to hit me up after this, uh, this gets released and, and tell me that they have a solution for this to work because I've been talking to a variety of peers and partners and nobody's managed to have encouraging enough signs as of now. Then looking at who owns what, um, I mean, I, I still have like um, a growth-minded approach to uh, top of the funnel campaigns. So if it's not purely trackable, that is owned by product marketing. So if you think about influencers, if you think about TV, podcasts to a certain extent, that is being owned by product marketing when user acquisition focuses on the more traditional channels. Obviously, these two teams should be working hand in hand because influencer marketing does have an impact on track channels, so does TV. So these are the silos that operate is on their side, but this is where the ownership ends. As for even higher, um, like a higher funnel campaigns, such as uh, sponsorship and whatnot, that is more of a brand decision. So the, the KPIs are different, like I said in the beginning, and this doesn't fall within the, the realm of the, the, the growth team with the, the, the product marketing and user acquisition. So to answer the last question now, the, the do's and, and do not for these campaigns, I, I think the key, key thing is to frame them. Frame them in terms of objectives and, and way to measure them. We shouldn't have the same expectations for a sponsorship as for a TV campaign. Uh, making sure that from the get-go, you know what are the, the hypotheses and what you should be measuring. And also, like I said, since media mix modeling is not there yet, making sure that you look at them in, in different, um, like you, you, you go one step at a time. If you start mixing everything up from the get-go, then, then there's no chance that you'll be able to measure anything. Got it. Okay, so basically going for the early signs of traction and considering everything else, kind of like a long-term investment into a brand. And it's almost like, like you would consider UX improvements in a game. Like they don't really change much, but over the time, as you make all these quality of life improvements in your build, it becomes a better game, but it just takes time and you can't measure like a single change of a button or a single change of the UX element to affect. And what I took out of it, like if Rovio again sponsors F1, like they've done before, <laughs> it will be probably you there in the Monaco smooching with the, <laughs> with the people. Just look at me there. Yeah. So, one comment, I think that brand defaults can be measured just with different KPIs. Um, if you're looking at the same KPIs as for traditional channels, then just don't do it. You're, mm. you're wasting your time. Yeah. yeah. And actually we had a Phil Hickey on uh, heading marketing for seriously on this podcast before. And he was talking about their mixed media channel, like how they, how they have had a success in, in radio and especially podcasts, uh, which is, which seems to be a sort of like a new, new way to interact with the audience. And I kind of was thinking about it later on and think, and podcast makes all the sense because you are listening and most likely doing something else at the same time, something like playing yeah. a game. And, and there is and, and good, good point. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that's linking to the topic of IPs, the beauty of podcasts and, and TV and influencers to some extent is that 
you have a lot of uh, thematic channels. So it, let's say small town. Small town can, can have a lot of traction in true crime-based podcasts, same for influencers. So you have this, this match that comes from the theme itself and, and not necessarily from the game. And based on my experience, very often that works even better than looking for gaming channels because you're bringing something new and, and that people are interested in in the first place. Uh, I'll take an example. I was working in this uh, 4X game in, in a previous life. And where we got the most traction was advertising on channels that were about the history of war. Because we had an audience of guys in their 50s that were all the rage about tanks. And that for the first time heard about this strategy game that was about it. So that, that's what I'm saying. This is also like a, a consideration to have in mind when you build an IP. Yeah, knowing so, that you can tap into these channels that that focus on, on on themes. Yeah, considering all these all these like not only like understanding your audience and then understanding how do you, are you going to connect with that audience and there are other ways to connect than just Facebook. Um, That's very true. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that that makes that makes all sense. So my last question it's always the same, no matter what kind of marketing person is on, and I ask always like, what is the best way for the game team? and the marketing team to work together. So you tell me. Um, two main things. Um, I truly believe in marketing being directly embedded within products. It's just one more craft within products. I, I think one of the, the main issues that we had in the past is finger pointing. Um, marketing was a satellite organization to products. So if you make sure that from the get-go, marketing starting with the user research and product marketing and marketing intelligence is embedded, going all the way to committee management is part of the team, then, then you're really improving that. So that's, um, that's to me, the, the, the main consideration to, to have to have a winning marketing team. And that means, that means also that the marketing, like when the marketing is embedded into the product, essentially that means that the bonuses that the team shares are one for all the team. So marketing bonuses are... Uh, marketing managers' bonuses are tied to the success of the game team. They are absolutely the same one. Everybody's going the same direction. They are, they are pulling different levers, but like it's the, the sum of all the parties that, that, that makes you win. I like that, especially if they're PNL focused, then that fo forces the, um, the game leads to really look at their marketing investments in more clear way because they have to approve it. They're not, they're, if, if the bonuses are say quarterly or, or mid year based, then if they're gonna eat up the marketing cost, then they believe that it is gonna come in later after the six months. So they make an investment and very calculated investments because they invest basically on their bonuses on it. So I think yeah, it just that, that, sharpens that's, that's everybody. Really yeah, sharpens everybody when your own bonuses are tied to it. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's my thing. That's, you, you want to make sure that there is some sort of um, craft leadership going on too, because there is a lot of uh, cross-sharing that should be happening within similar products. Well, I mean, there, there is some experience to, I mean, when you learn on the similar product, then, then you, you might as well make sure that others are benefiting from that. But there is, of course, um, as far as I'm concerned, some, some direct embedding, embedding sorry, within product. All right, last, last pieces. This is more like an outro or a shout out. So I've noticed that Rovio is, is hiring a lot for different type of marketing roles. Now, what does a super solid marketing team look like? And I'm talking about your team. And what are you looking for? So right now, we, we have, like you say, a lot of open positions. So uh, we have a very hot pipeline of products coming up. Um, so we're looking for product marketing, user acquisition. And like I said, we also have this 
pretty unique role within the industry. Um, I mean, there might be a couple of publishers who have it, uh, which is advertising creative leads. Um, because, I mean, you said it yourself very clearly, creative is king and, and will be even king er if that's a thing, in the future. So we want to make sure that we, we have this brains and like this uh, creative powerhouse uh, within the team. So these are the roles that we're looking into currently. Um, there will be more coming up as we have more live games on the, on the community side of things. And just hit up the, the carry page on, 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 on our website and you'll see that there is um, well, quite a lot going on. Are the marketers encouraged to hit you up on LinkedIn? Yes, they should. They should. Right. I'm a then, very, very, despite everything that you said in the intro, I'm, I'm very approachable and, and kind and gentle. Yeah, but you can still kick ass. But anyway, so. That's you. <laughs> So, so hit Kieran up. There will be a link in the description of this podcast and ask more about certain open positions. But, um, but that sums it up. Hope this was uh, informative for everybody. It was definitely informative for me uh, to talk more about product marketing management. I'm happy to see that it has and it's getting more and more value in the, uh, in the gaming world. Thanks a lot for having me, Miska. That was a really good talk. All right. See you later. See ya.